0: This may seem small, but it's big for us to like say the word disability and talk about it in a way that helps break the stigma. That's really an important thing that our community needs right now is prominent national people who are willing to talk about disability as a human experience, uh, something that all of us in some form will experience in our lives and normalize it. Because once we can normalize it, we can we can start to address some of the issues our community faces.
1: Hello, this is The Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today is Dom Kelly, who's the founder of a group called The New Disabled South. They're working to improve the lives of disabled people and cultivate strong disability rights and disability justice frameworks in the South. Dom was previously both the Georgia fundraising director and the senior advisor for disability for Stacey Abrams' campaign for governor of Georgia, and before that, senior fundraising manager and strategic advisor for disability at Fair Fight Action, where he also created and led the organization's Disability Council. Dom has a very interesting story having been a disability advocate since he was four years old, as well as a musician in a successful touring rock band with his brothers for many years. I really enjoyed the conversation with Dom, and I think you'll find it well worth the listen. So, first my sponsor, then my interview with Dom Kelly about New Disabled South. Dom, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick
0: biography? Absolutely. So my name is Dom Kelly. I use he, him pronouns. I am the founder, president, and CEO of New Disabled South, the 501c3 organization, and New Disabled South Rising, our C4 advocacy arm. I am a longtime disability rights and disability justice advocate. I have cerebral palsy and have been doing disability work in some form or fashion since I was four years old. Before I jumped into New Disabled South full-time, I was senior advisor for disability on Stacey Abrams' gubernatorial campaign, and prior to that was at Fair Fight Action, Stacey's voting rights organization, and have had a career in editorial and digital and have been a little bit all over the place until I landed in fundraising and landed in policy work. So that's me. I think it's a lot, especially for a young man, but you know, getting going at
1: four, you have a lot of time to develop a career. Absolutely. When I look at you, I don't, I can't tell you're disabled across the monitor and it's sometimes a little awkward to ask people about, you know, how they're a little different than everybody else. But I think in the case of this podcast, it's probably, and what you do, could you just describe what your condition has done to you and what you contend with?
0: Yeah, so I have what's known as spastic diplegic cerebral palsy. That means it affects one set of limbs. For me, it affects my legs primarily. I walk with a little bit of a limp. I wear braces on my legs. I use a wheelchair very occasionally if I if I need it, um, but I've had a number of surgeries. I've had physical therapy and all, all the things as as a kid for for years, and now as an adult, continue to do that. You know, when I was a kid, it it impacted my mobility. Associated with CP is like chronic pain, um, stiff, tight muscles. I'm a triplet, so my identical triplet. Also has spastic diplegic CP. My fraternal triplet, who passed away when we were six, he had spastic quadriplegia, so he it affected all four of his limbs, and he used a wheelchair full time. It impacts everybody a little differently. There are no like two people with CP who who are the same, really. But for me, as an adult, when I turned about twenty seven, um, I started to notice some physical changes. They say that CP is usually not a, a progressive disability but what they mean is that the brain damage that causes cp at birth doesn't progress but the symptoms do as you get older and usually late 20s early 30s is when a lot of people start to see that so my mobility has declined in the last like 5 years or so and my pain and fatigue have increased so it it like changes and it has changed for me but i have like continued to have a good support system and continue to you know find doctors and other folks that understand cp and have been willing to to help me find things that have you know make my pain and my fatigue a little bit less
1: was that cp a
0: result of injury during birth that affected all three of you yeah so we were born three and a half months premature so it, you're pretty high chance that you'll have some sort of developmental disability if you're born that early for us Being born that early, we all suffered brain damage. I had a lack of oxygen to my brain. And my two other brothers, from what I um, know, both had hemorrhages in their brains. So for all three of us, that that was what caused our, our CP.
1: As I've gotten older, I've had some mobility challenges. You know, my left knee is screwed up. I can't run on the soccer field like I used to. I can't jump like I used to in basketball, things like that. And I guess it comes with the territory of aging. It's a totally different thing. But I know there's a loss there. Have you along the way sort of railed at the gods or like felt angry or mad or what has been your attitude towards, you know, this is unfairness in life?
0: Yeah, I I think as a a kid, maybe when I started to notice that other kids didn't wear braces on their legs and didn't walk the way I did. I, I definitely experienced that where I'd, I'd compare myself to people and I would get pissed off about it and, and question why. And I think I will say a lot, a lot of credit goes to my parents, particularly my mom, who threw my brothers and I in front of a room full of high school seniors when we were four years old and said, You're going to tell your story. Good, good luck, basically. And we started to talk about disability and and it started to be like normalized in our school and our district and with our peers. And I think that that helped me learn to accept that this was just my lot in life and that actually I could be proud of it. And I would say it wasn't until I was an adult, really like in my 20s, that I, I started to find community and realized that there are lots of disabled folks in the world who, despite the challenges that come with being disabled. There's community. And I was really, I would say, like radicalized in the disability movement by what's known as the the social model for disability, which is different from the medical model. The medical model really focuses on diagnosis and focuses on symptoms. And, and the social model focuses more on the community, the identity of being disabled. And this idea that our society is what is disabling, that I would say sort of radicalized me a little bit and made me feel a sense of pride in my identity as a disabled person. And knowing that I'm not alone in my like experience, that not only do I have my brother, but I have like all these people around the world who are organizing for justice for our community and rights for our community. And I feel proud about that. So I, I don't rail against the gods anymore. Uh, it's been a long time since I have, but you know, there are days when I'm in pain where I'm like, oh God, you know, when I, I had COVID for the first time, like three weeks ago, my, my muscles were spasming more than in a long time. And I had a few moments where I was like, I just was, I was mad. I didn't want to be in pain. I, I wish it would, would have been different. And you know, I got out of that.
1: Yeah, very understandable. Um, I, quite some time ago, I think back in 2020, I interviewed Judy Human, who's a rather famous disability rights activist who helped get a lot of national legislation passed and has been super active in that community. And there's a movie she's just one of the stars in as a young woman and kind of a legend, honestly. And I've had a walk and roll with her in D.C., um, kind of a hero to me now you know her do you have a sense of like the political folks who've been leaders uh before you and now
0: oh yeah yeah i i've um corresponded with judy uh a a bit in the past and we we met we met in person once at the white house a couple years ago but yeah i mean judy has just been a trailblazer and there have been a lot of people who have come before that i've really i've been really thrilled to get to know or meet or be introduced to and Rebecca Coakley is a big activist, longtime activist advocate working in the Obama White House, is just a phenomenal person and and a friend, and now is at the Ford Foundation. Alice Wong is a big disability justice activist um, who's become a friend as well. So yeah, I've, I've gotten to know folks, I've gotten to know people who have come before me. And I I really look to the work that they that they've done to help me build out my own organizing infrastructure here in the South and kind of learn from their tactics and the work that they've done. Yeah. What was your road to college? And where did you go? And what did you study? I've had a weird ride. Um, I was actually in a band um, when I was in uh, as a, a kid started when I was 11, with my identical brother and my younger brother. And we were homeschooled for the last couple of years of high school so we could tour. So we were touring around the country and eventually around the world. What did you play? I was drummer and singer. Um, Eventually then I was, I think eventually I was keyboardist and singer for a few years. And weren't you like along with really
1: major bands, right? Like you were on big tours and.
0: Yeah. Yeah. We, we toured with, with Indigo Girls for a while, Matthew Sweet, Toe the Wet Sprocket, the Bengals, nobody that our friends were listening to, um, (laughs) people that we, you know, grew up idolizing. Um, I've
1: been to an Indigo Girls Concert and when I grew up in Boulder, toed the wet sprocket. They often played in Boulder. Such an interesting, unusual name. So
0: yeah, they're from the West Coast. I don't know if they're from Colorado. Those are good guys. I mean, yeah, we, we got to like have this really cool career pretty young, and so I, I wound up doing school online. I got my undergrad at Full Sail University in music production because I was just I was going to do music. Very quickly realized I did not want to do music or at least produce music. It wasn't something I was interested in. I did actually open a recording studio with my brother in Savannah, um, like 12 years ago or so. And, uh, you know, it wasn't a great investment, uh, cause studios are, you know, most people are recording at home now. And then I, I got a master's degree in new media journalism and thought I'd work in, you know, editorial and journalism. And I was a managing editor at a news brand for like almost five years and, worked as a director of social media at a media company, and then realized I needed to get paid for the activism and advocacy work I was doing and that I could actually have a career with it.
1: So what was your entry into
0: paid uh, activism and as opposed to what you are doing when you are four or five? I had started like doing speaking engagements and things like that here and there, but really it, it was Fair Fight. It was getting in at Fair Fight I really wanted to work there. They were a new organization, and I, my wife and I had lived in Los Angeles for a little bit, and we were going to move back to Georgia. It was the only job I wanted. I, I just wanted to do voting rights. There was a fundraising job open, and I had some fundraising experience, and I knew someone who knew someone who worked there, and so I was able to kind of get my foot in the door, and I got hired there, and then one my first week i asked somebody there if they were doing any work around disability and they were like we don't really have anything specific that we're doing and that's kind of how i built out our portfolio there tell me about that in more detail i knew firsthand from experience that disabled voters are usually impacted by voter suppression in ways that most people may not even realize The obvious is like long lines. A lot of disabled voters, depending on disability, it's difficult for them to stand in line for a long period of time. But there there are many other things. And when I started to ask those questions, I would start to be brought into different conversations about like the work that we were doing outside of my job which was fundraising to kind of bring our disability perspective I set up an event with with Stacy with a disability organization talking about voting rights for people with disabilities and and then post general election in 2020 it was really during the runoff um, the Senate runoff that I I um, there was a need some dis- some disability activists here in Georgia that i knew needed some funds to be able to get accessible rides to polls for disabled people because a lot of the issues that disabled folks face here especially in rural areas is that they don't have transportation to get to the polls and if they can find transportation it's not accessible if they use a wheelchair so we were able to get some funding to a group that organized rides to polls for disabled people and through that, started started up a, a disability council um, where I pulled in policy experts and advocates from across the country um, to be a part of this council at Fair Fight. I got to do some work on advocating for the federal voting rights legislation in 2021. And um, we did some cool organizing stuff together and the built didn't pass, but we were able to you know, really I guess, really mobilize disabled voters in Georgia and also in other parts of the country around the, this this voting rights legislation and also around the this huge wave of anti-voting legislation that we saw post-2020, a lot of which impacted disabled voters disproportionately. It,
1: it really seems like people passing uh, legislation intended to allegedly make voting less subject to fraud Don't even think about the complexity of democracy for people who are different than them, for people whose lives are more on the margins in so many different ways. It's kind of a shame that that there has to be so much effort put into waking people up to that, but I'm, I'm glad someone was doing it. What was Fair Fight like to work at as a place? Is it a good environment? where there good people around? How, how do they treat you?
0: Oh, yeah. I mean, I I loved every second of my time at Fair Fight. Our leadership was phenomenal. Stacy was, you know, she wasn't involved in the day-to-day. She was chair of the board, but she, you know, I, I think I got to work with her pretty closely because I was doing fundraising. She was our best fundraiser as our principal, but the people there were phenomenal, um, really smart, doing really... Incredible work that everyone was passionate about. Everyone on our team cared about voting rights. Everyone on our team had been impacted by voter suppression in some way, personally, um, in their families, in their communities, and so it just felt like I was going to work every day with folks who just cared as much as I did. And I had not had that at previous workplaces, and that's not always the case for folks. So I felt really privileged to have to have that. And then everyone treated me great. Any idea that I had around disability, around how to include disability, like I I really never got much pushback. Everybody saw the need for it and everybody recognized that if we were to be working toward an inclusive democracy for everybody and that we were going to truly be a progressive organization, we had to include that disability perspective in our work. So I, I just always got nothing but really welcoming, encouraging feedback
1: it's nice when the ideology of an organization is aligned with inclusivity like that like it because it's easy for people to translate from whatever they're contending with to what other people might be absolutely yeah what did you learn about fundraising there
0: well i think in ways our fundraising there was a lot easier than many other places because of who our principal was she kind of was hot oh yeah oh yeah Yeah. i mean everyone wanted to give money to to fair fight and it had a lot to do with stacy and it had a lot to do with the great you know work that we were doing but stacy knows how to fundraise and so um and she's brilliant at it so i would say it was it was not as difficult as other fundraising experiences that i've had even currently leading my own organization it, it was not as difficult I did all aspects of fundraising at Fair Fight for my first like eight months or so. It was actually just me full time. Um, we had a couple consultants, but I was I was doing pretty much everything into some capacity at some point. And our digital program, I, I would say, was was really solid, and and we had some really good supportive donors. And I, I, I learned that we can have a really strong grassroots fundraising program without annoying the crap out of everybody constantly with emails and texts because, you know, everyone just gets so tired of that stuff. And I think we were pretty thoughtful in how we, we utilized a really big list. And so I learned how to do that thoughtfully and strategically and not like burn out our list so much. So I take that knowledge with me to like what I'm doing now.
1: You said she's brilliant at it, Stacy. Mm-hmm. Why? How? What? explain
0: that she knows how to s- not just sell something to somebody but to talk about issues in a way that people can understand and that they will want to invest in cuz you know on the campaign for instance you're selling yourself as a candidate but you know when you're fundraising with Georgians and and even outside of, of Georgia like you're you're talking about policy you're talking about your positions and and sometimes you know, people just zone out when you get into talking about policy. And she has a really great way of translating that into a a way that everyone can understand. And I think the biggest thing I learned as a fundraiser from her is is how to prepare going into a conversation, um, like not just have a memo and like know who the donor is, but like really, really understand from reading a bio, like I know what this person is gonna be looking for. I know the points that I really need to focus on and just have that instinct. Like she has an instinct for how to talk to people, how to understand people. She did it for over a decade. She drove around the state of Georgia with a deck that she would show people about how she was gonna turn Georgia blue in 10 years. And she she did it. I mean, she raised that money from people who didn't even know who she was. Um, so she knows how to connect with people. And and she knows how to make an ask in a really a really thoughtful way, and that has been something I've really like valued learning from her. Not an easy skill. No, not at all.
1: What was the transition from Fair Fight Action
0: to Stacey Abrams for Governor? The CEO of Fair Fight at the time, Lauren Girl Wargo, she basically just called me up and said, "Stacey's going to run for governor. I-, I want you to help," and asked me to to. Be at her house later that week, and I spent a few days just like my stomach was a knot. I was pumped and also like super nervous about what you know what she wanted me to do. Um, and yeah, she just asked me to come on and uh, help lead our fundraising efforts. And then you know I said from the beginning like we're going to need to build out a scope of work around disability. Um, and she was just all for it, and you know Stacy was all for it. We launched on December first of twenty twenty one. That was day one on the campaign, and you know my last day at Fair was the day before, so there was no, there was really no, uh, no break at all. And from there, we, you know, we were a small team of I think five or six of us full time um, on the campaign when we started, and we just grew. We had over two, almost two hundred people, I think, by the end of the campaign. But it was a smooth transition and and exciting. What did it feel like from the inside of that campaign? From the outside,
1: people, for some reason, I guess it was polling, got a little discouraged. And some people gave up on it along the way, unfortunately. Sometimes the big forces are hard to overcome. What did it feel like from the inside?
0: I I think from the start and even up to the very end, that the focus was always on delivering for Georgians and that really helped to now all of the noise, all of the, the media narrative, the pollsters, the, it just, it, it made us focus on the work. I think one of the brilliant things that, that Stacy included in her organizing strategy was um, we had a constituent services team um, that worked alongside the field team where if we would go knock on someone's door and they said, I'm about to be evicted from my house, I can't even pay my rent. How am I going to vote? A member of our constituent services team would reach out to that person and get them the resources that they needed to be able to try and stay in their homes or whatever the issue was. And, um, and, you know, she's already acting like a governor. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And, and she would say, we, we can govern without being governor and i really appreciated and really valued that that perspective and that she put that into action it was a really hectic year and of course there were so many hot takes and so many opinions and it was easier to tune it out when we were constantly reminded that the focus was on delivering for Georgians and Stacey's policy platform was so comprehensive and thoughtful. And our disability engagement efforts, we did things that no one's done in, in on campaigns before and met disabled Georgians in places where no one would go to talk to them in group homes. And we did that across identity, really, like Stacey when our team knew how to meet people where they were. So, um, yeah, I think... There there was negativity, and we knew from the start this was going to be a really tough race. We were facing an incumbent governor, but we we focused on the Georgians. We focused on delivering for people. We helped people. We didn't just ask for votes. We gave people the resources that they needed to better their lives, and that really helped to just like get all the noise out of the way and just focus on why we were there.
1: I think it's one of the hard things about democracy is sometimes the right candidate doesn't win. In their infinite wisdom, groups of people sometimes make mistakes, I think, and don't act in, in what probably is their best interest in the long term, at least as we see it. Um, tell me about that disability portfolio part of your work there in more detail. Tell me about like some of the things you did and how could people trying to do stuff like that elsewhere in other states on other campaigns, what can they
0: learn from your efforts? My role is senior advisor for disability and I built out our disability engagement and accessibility department. So by the end of the campaign, I had nine folks in my department. We were doing anything from making sure that our content was accessible, making sure that our events were accessible, which meant you know we would arrange for Live captioners, range for ASL interpreters. We really worked actually across all departments. But then, even more than that, we would we would have events with the disability community. I brought Stacy to, like I said, a, a group home in Macon, Georgia, with a women with, with women with intellectual and developmental disabilities who had never talked to an elected or a candidate before um, because no one had ever come to them to talk to them in that way. And Stacey had a real conversation with them about what they were hoping for. We made sure our website was fully accessible. And one of the things that I'm really most proud of was we we had the whole website translated into multiple languages, but we had one version of the website that was plain language, which is like a simplified language. Ideally, it's for folks with intellectual disabilities. And so our entire website, we had a full translation into plain language and our entire website was fully translated into American Sign Language. So when you see a, a block of text, there's a little toggle button to be able to click. And then you could, you'll have a video where there's an ASL interpreter who's signing. And that's because ASL is the native language for a lot of deaf folks, not English. And I've actually never seen a website do that before. Do you know how many people use
1: that? Do you have a sense of like, There's there's putting it up there. And then I'd be curious, like, does that actually end up with 10 people doing it or 10,000 people
0: doing it? I have no idea. I wish I had data on that. And it's something we talked a little bit about was like, if we're making this investment, because that that stuff isn't cheap. And if we're making this investment, how are we ensuring that it has impact? But really, to us, it was kind of a, a no brainer because you know, even if it was 10 people, those are 10 people who need to know what Stacey's about. It is telling
1: people in another way what she's about, right? It is symbolically important. I'm I'm certain of that.
0: Yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And yeah. I, as I say the other thing that we did that I'm most proud of is that we, we had full-time ASL interpreters as full-time staffers, which had never been done before on a political campaign. I, I know folks who have been pushing campaigns to to hire full-time interpreters for years folks who pushed the white house to finally hire full-time interpreters which they now have but i was never met with any pushback it was like yeah of course let's do it so we hired two asl interpreters we were able to hire deaf staffers and to other departments outside of my department i'm really proud of that i'm really proud that we were able to do something historic and and also because I want other campaigns to do the same thing, and so a couple people said to me, like, you know, I'm always I'm always going to point to Stacy's campaign because no one can tell me no anymore. It's been done. That's really what I'm hoping is that we we were able to maybe set set the bar um, higher. And and uh, I'm actually on the side actually trying to work with campaigns to build out the. The kind of infrastructure that we built on Stacey's campaign helped them build out a disability engagement and accessibility team on their own campaign. So I'm kind of working on that on the side a little bit. So
1: Yeah, you don't want it to be just like a blip of a high point. You want it to become institutionalized and spread around. And I bet we're a ways from, from that happening. Have you talked to any of the digital consultants that build lots of websites advocating that this is something that they do for all of their their customers it might be a good way to spread it around
0: yeah i i haven't done that yet a friend and i who she uh they actually were my deputy on my department near the end of the campaign but we've been friends and worked together for a while in some capacity and the two of us are building out this like side gig thing and that, that's on our list is where we need to talk to the digi firms about how we how we actually get them to make that a part of just a part of the work that that they do and the work that they offer um which which can be done. They just need folks who are willing to do it and also willing to learn about how to do it. I don't have a great sense of
1: the proportion of people in a state like Georgia, which I assume is similar everywhere, that are disabled. How relevant is it to an election outcome to be serving and speaking to that community? How
0: big is that? Well, in Georgia, one in four adults have a disability. And that's actually also the same nationally. One in four, I think, is the most recent number. Um, uh, In terms of registered voters, I don't have the, um, I I don't exactly know the stats off the top of my head, but that's just people who identify. Disability identity is also, it's very personal. Not everybody likes the word disabled or disability. They think it has a negative um, connotation. Um, And so some people could be, living with some kind of diagnosis or condition or some something that is disabling for them and may not identify that way, but would be impacted by policy choices that would harm disabled people just the same. So we're a huge voting block. And I don't know that we've ever been seriously considered a voting block. But It's pretty
1: cross cutting across partisanship. And I mean, I, I would assume disability doesn't know <laughs> the polarized country very well. But do you have a sense that it made a difference beyond symbolically that you
0: got out more voters because of these efforts? Did you measure this sort of stuff? I know it made a difference. It made a difference just in the number of conversations that I had with folks who said, nobody has ever talked about the issues that I face every day in a way that your campaign has. We had a targeted GOTV programs specifically for disabled folks. We hired a dozen part-time, we call them community captains, who we we paid to be able to like get out the vote in their community, to be able to get volunteers to do text banking and phone banking or knock doors. These were folks who had never had the opportunity to be paid to do this kind of work before because it was often inaccessible, but we created you know, accessible opportunities. And I talked to so many people who said, I'd never voted before, but seeing that Stacey is talking about employment first for disabled Georgians is huge. Stacey brought to a national platform an issue in Georgia that we have where 7,000 people with intellectual and developmental disabilities are on a waiting list for Medicaid waivers that will give them home and community-based services. People have been waiting for 10, 15, 20 years for these waivers. Stacey talked about it in her closing argument at the last debate she did with Governor Kemp. I don't think that people talk about it in closing arguments at debates, let alone like in a platform like that. And we got a lot of coverage on that issue. That must have been very moving for you. Oh, I wasn't expecting it at all. Um, and I was, I was watching it at a, one of our staff watch parties and I, I started crying because I this was an issue that she and I had worked on together and that she still cares about. She was on Good Morning America in December and brought up this issue. She's on my advisory board and she talked about how New Disabled South is working on this issue. And so it's something she cares about. And if she cares about something, she's going to talk about it. But that moment was just like, so powerful. I got so many texts and calls from people who were just blown away that she talked about this, you know, parents whose kids, I met a a woman this week whose kid was on the waiting list for 19 years before she got a, a waiver. These are the people that are impacted. And those are the kind of stories we heard from throughout the campaign. People who said like, wow, I've never heard a candidate talk about this before. Thank you for, for hearing us and thank you for talking about our community in that way. So I I I do really believe it, it it moved the needle. Yeah. Just listening to you talk about it now. I'm glad to have
1: the chance because I think more people should hear that and we should make that just part of of all efforts like this. What were you thinking election night and
0: how did you transition from that to what you're doing now? I went into that day I felt kind of peaceful I, I I was nervous but I felt like you know I, I, I felt like I could go either way. I really believed that we had left everything on the table and so like we we could win or we could get completely decimated and unfortunately we 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 lost but I I felt really at peace. I felt like Stacy inspired a lot of people. Our team really brought in a lot of people. That had never been involved in um, politics before. That had never felt that there was a reason for them to vote, and that we did what we talked about from that of uh, the very first meeting we had when it was six of us full time. Which was, we're doing this work to serve Georgians, and we're going to help Georgians, even if even if Stacey's not governor. And I I felt that night when. My wife and I left the hotel. Like we did that, we did what we set out to do, even even though we, you know, we didn't win. And I just jumped right in to New Disabled South. What was the vision there? So I had been working on New Disabled South for um, I've been working on it for a few years, really, as an idea. I've been working on it part time. I'd finished up another master's degree in nonprofit leadership, and through that, you know, working on that program and through working at Fair Fight I had was building out this idea and then a week to the day after mm-hmm. election night I officially launched New Disabled South and the vision was that we I wanted to see a south where we had justice for disabled folks because the work I had done in Georgia the the people I talked to the issues that they faced I'd started to realize that these were issues that people across our region had faced and that there was no regional strategy for disability rights or disability justice in the US. There had never been. There's been really great organizations working at at the national level, really great organizations working at the state and local level, but we had never had that kind of regional perspective on this work. We had never had like a convening table to bring all the folks into this space together and in talking to people like Becca Coakley and Maria Town at American Association of People with Disabilities and others in the space, like it just became apparent that we could really benefit from having a regional organizing strategy, and particularly a Southern one.
1: What's different about the South with respect to disability?
0: In the South, first of all, the poverty rates for disabled people, we live in poverty at twice the rate of non-disabled people. And the South has some of the highest poverty rates out of any other states in, in this country. We also have eight out of, I think, 11 or 12 now states that haven't expanded Medicaid are in the South. And there are a lot of disabled people that are in that coverage gap, people who maybe don't have access to a doctor or a hospital. For instance, there are nine counties in Georgia that don't even have a single doctor in their county. So if you can't get to a doctor or you don't have accessible transportation to get to a doctor, you're not going to get a diagnosis. You're not going to necessarily count as having a disability that would allow you to have Medicaid. So there are people in the coverage gap. You know, we have really high rates of incarceration in the South and incarceration rates, particularly for Black men with disabilities, are really high. The list goes on. I mean, the the South is just a region that is very difficult for disabled people, especially those who rely on like Medicaid and SSDI, to be able to get access to the care that they need. The issue I talked about before with home and community-based services in Georgia, that's a national issue, but it's really a South issue. 75% of folks in this country that are on the waiting list for these waivers are in the South. Texas's waiting list is huge. I mean, we're we're just looking at a crisis in the South. So that's why I really saw the need to be able to have like a regional perspective on this work.
1: So what do you think you can do to change that situation?
0: Well, I think the first thing we need is to bring all of these people together who are doing the kind of work that we're doing, the policy advocacy work, the organizing, investing in research. Like, We need to bring all of those people together so we can look at these through lines and look at how we can find solutions that take into account these issues from a multi-state perspective. One of the big things we need is, is a really solid comm strategy that our community just hasn't had. We haven't had the the resources to be able to invest in like really good paid media, really good earned media we just haven't had that. So here in Georgia right now with, with our waiver list is our kind of priority issue. We've got ads going up on New Sable South has ads going up on TV in every major media market in Georgia. We've got digital ads across, across the state, and we're trying to get folks mobilized around these issues. And we're trying to educate people on, on these issues, because if you're not affected by them, oftentimes you don't even know that it's an issue. Most people don't know that there's people who have been waiting for 20 years to get home care and instead of are forced into institutions, and nursing homes, like that's just not something people are aware of. And I think that is kind of our primary strategy. And what we're really good at is, is that comms piece and how we can create a narrative that breaks through to people and then mobilizes people, people who are disabled and people who are not disabled to come together and Fight for these issues at the state and local level, and then ideally at the national, at the federal level as well. Ads,
1: digital and otherwise, sounds expensive. Also sounds like you need a bit of a team to think about what they should say, figure out how to target them. Who's part of your organization? What has it taken to get it to that point? Where are you finding funding?
0: It's been a lot of work. We started out It was a team of two, myself and my COO. She was at Groundswell Fund uh, for a while and then was HR Director on the Abrams campaign, Casey Amon Wilson. And it was the two of us. And we, I started out with seed funding from Ford Foundation to be able to get New Disabled South off the ground. We got some funding from Borealis Philanthropy and New Media Ventures. They just announced our funding yesterday, actually. Awesome. And so we were able to kind of get at least the seed funding we needed to hire. We just hired a research. We're calling it a research and coalition organizing manager and then a communications director. So we were able to get the funding to do that. We got some great support from OSF through a a a regrant. We were able to work out with them and they are funding our paid media operation right now around Georgia and the waiting list because they're really invested in the care economy. So um, we were able to get that from them. And we've gotten some actually good support from some individual donors as well. One who was able to help seed our C4 work so that we could get the C4 off the ground. So I'm good at fundraising and I enjoy fundraising, which a lot of people don't. So it's fun for me to ask people for money. I I like the challenge. And and then it's been really cool to just be able to build the kind of team that we want. Yeah, it will we'll be a full-time team of five as of, as of next month.
1: I think if a well-meaning but less schooled person came to me and said, I'm going to form this thing. I would like to do sort of the things that you've mentioned. Or I would be pretty skeptical about like, how are you going to make this happen? But you've gotten so far so quickly, I think. You're bringing a lot to it in terms of connections and, and relevant experience. It's nice to see when the founder has all those things going for them. But where do you want it to be as you push it forward?
0: I would like us in the immediate to have some some policy wins that we can really point to in Georgia and other states. And then in 2024, because we have the C4 arm now, we, we can do more. I wanna be able to, in an election year, be able to focus on our C4 side, on more of our electoral organizing throughout the South. And then beyond that, our vision, my vision and Casey Amon's vision is that we are able to build out what I keep calling like a new disabled America. And so we'll have regional. Uh, I hope you've yeah. saved that URL and stuff. Oh, I, I, I actually need to do that. Thank you. <laughs> I really want to do it. I want to have a national organization that has regional chapters, like a new disabled South, new disabled, you know, northeast whatever we whatever we call it but i want to have this in every region of this country and so we can we can both do this work at a federal level but also have the regional work being done throughout our country so
1: how do you plan to navigate the intersection of what you're trying to do with partisanship because you know if you want to get stuff through georgia right now it's not democrats that are in power And I don't think that this is necessarily a very partisan issue. There are things that ought to be done by anyone who kind of looked at it carefully from either side of the aisle. There's a lot of these things that you're advocating for that that could be supported by anyone with a good heart, right? You're obviously coming from one side of the aisle. You're
0: embedded in the Democratic side. How do you manage that? I think that's been a challenge just historically for our, our movement. The ADA was a bipartisan effort. It it was signed into law by a Republican president. Americans with Disabilities Act. Yeah, Americans with Disabilities Act, exactly. I think other disability focused legislation is is, you know, proof that we can have bipartisan support on these issues, but Unfortunately, we are much more polarized, I think, than we were when the ADA was passed. How we are tackling this right now, at least here in Georgia, is to focus on the people that this impacts, to focus on uplifting the stories of the people that are waiting on a waiting list or the people who are living paycheck to paycheck because they can't work or the people who can't get married because they'll lose their benefits if they marry someone who makes too much they'll lose their disability we're telling those stories and i think by focusing on those people and focusing on stories of people in our community we can break through no matter what side of the aisle people are on i'll go back to the home and community-based services there's bipartisan support to fund 2,400 waiver slots on that waiting list this year. There was a Senate study committee last year led by a state senator, Sally Harrell, and state senator John Albers, and a Republican and a Democrat. There is support for this issue, but I think you have to approach it in different ways with different people. Like the way I talk about it with one person is different than the way I talk about it with another. I may talk to this person about Personal stories and pull on the heartstrings. And then I may talk to another legislator about the economic impact of this issue on the people of Georgia. And so I think it's about how we talk about it and it's whose stories we uplift and remind our elected leaders that the disability community is across parties. The latest data that I heard was like, we are pretty much split 50% Democrat, 50% Republican in the disability community.
1: I mean, it makes sense because the country's split about that way. Why would there be much difference? Who can you align with? What allies do you find for this?
0: Nationally, people like Ayanna Presley, she's a big, a big uh, disability advocate. She has been really a valuable person for our community. We've got Elizabeth Warren, who's been really, really great for our community. Tammy Duckworth is a member of our community. We've got those those folks, but even outside of elected officials, we've got great national leaders in our space who are leading nonprofits, who are working at, you know, big corporations. There are groups that are doing work to get large companies to make commitments to the disability community, whether that's hiring disabled people or investing in disabled-led work. We've got a lot of support, but I think what we don't have is enough enough people who are willing to, this may seem small, but it's big for us to like say the word disability and talk about it in a way that helps break the stigma. That's really an important thing that our community needs right now is prominent national people who are willing to talk about disability as a human experience, uh, something that all of us in some form will experience in our lives and normalize it cuz once we can normalize it we can we can start to address some of the issues our community faces, but there's still so much stigma associated with it. So we have allies but we we need more people who are willing to get up and actually talk about it and you know talk about disability on Good Morning America or wherever else and not in a way that is just to Inspire people, but to tell real stories of how policy and how our government impacts the lives of people with disabilities day to day.
1: I can see how we could make a lot of progress. It does seem achievable. I hope you have a lot of su- success in this. You know, Thank you. is there a question that I should have asked you that I haven't?
0: I would love if you would ask or would have asked, how can the progressive movement do better around disability? How could the progressive movement do better around disability? Well, I I did some independent research a few years ago. I just put up a, a poll. I got over 100 people to respond, people with disabilities and chronic illnesses. And I asked them to answer a bunch of questions, which were basically like, Does your perception of ableism or inaccessibility from a progressive candidate or progressive organization, does that impact your willingness to volunteer with that organization, to donate to that candidate, or to even vote for that candidate? And overwhelmingly, around 90% for almost every question was like, yes, I, I would consider not voting for somebody if they were ableist or their content was inaccessible. Or same with with orgs, regardless of my political affiliation. And so, what that showed to me, and what I've been trying to like talk to folks in our progressive community about, is that we we cannot have justice for anyone if we don't have disability justice, and vice versa, because there are Black disabled people, there are disabled Im- immigrants, there are disabled basically every, every identity and, um, and that if we're going to um, truly be a movement that helps our country move forward, we need to include disability in that. So that means like listening to disabled folks when they tell you language that you use is ableist or inaccessible, doing really basic things like captioning content and having ASL interpreters, they should be the standard, but so many folks don't do that and then just like including disability in in the work that you do it even if you don't have a disability focused scope of work we have to include disabled voices we have to include that perspective and if if the progressive movement can start to include disability more if we can understand like I'm talking to you so I have to talk about the voter file like I I can't go into into van and there's no there's no disability status data for any voter and it's a conversation I'm having with like data data teams right now about how we can start to better understand who our voters are so we can make sure our field programs are more accessible and we have to start thinking creatively about how we can include disability and disabled people in this work and I think that's the way that we can we can really start to move forward.
1: I'm not sure how Van codes such things. I'm sure you could make a code up and maybe a lot of people have, I don't know. But yeah, it's the kind of thing these databases are always evolving to become more aware of the complicated nature of humans and all of our attributes. So I think it's a a reasonable point. Really an honor to talk to you. I think you do a, a great job of laying out what you're up to and why. Appreciate the time. Is there anything else you wanna
0: say? No, I just really appreciate you having me do this. It's an honor. Cool.
1: That was Dom Kelly. He's at newdisabledsouth.org. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with The Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield